0: You are listening to gone but never forgotten our topics can include but are not limited to murder sexual assault graphic and gruesome details and more these topics are adult in nature and are not meant for everyone listener discretion is advised if you have ever taken a psychology class or really if you are a fan of true crime At some point in your life, you have probably come across the bystander effect. The bystander effect is a social psychological theory that states that individuals are less likely to offer help to a victim of a crime when there are other people present. They believe instead that someone else must have called authorities or someone else will help. This theory is actually largely based on the murder of Kitty Genovese, and we are going to change a lot of what you may know or may have been taught about that case here today. Lost in all of the controversy that has surrounded that over the years is a story of a woman that was brutally murdered, regardless of the circumstances that surrounded that murder. Hello, and welcome to episode 61 of Gone But Never Forgotten, The Bystander Effect, The Murder of Kitty Genovese. Hello everyone, and welcome back to GBNF. We hope that this episode, as always, finds you and yours doing well. Last week, we covered the story of Lucas Shortreed, a case that hopefully has been solved after years of mystery, and this week, we are covering a story that was solved relatively quickly, and yet, had a shroud of mystery and mystique around it. This week, we cover a case that I personally remember learning about in psychology class when I was studying at Brandon University. A case that is still, to this day, called back to as an example of something that, well, it wasn't an example of. Before we get started, I want to take a minute just to do a little housekeeping for GBNF and bring everyone up to speed on where we are and where things are going. For the most part, I am now going to do the podcast on my own. It's become a little bit much trying to schedule all of the time that it takes to do a podcast for the two of us. So, moving forward, we may have Julie on for an episode here or there, but in general, you are stuck with me. Hopefully that's alright by everyone, and hopefully you don't all stop listening. I'm going to continue to do the Patreon-only reaction videos for those that watch, and will continue to try and keep the bulk of my personal opinions on the cases that I cover over there. So, please, if you want to get more personal about the cases, and with me about the cases, and other, with other patrons, please sign up over on patreon.com forward slash Podcast. For now, though, let's dive into this case that we have before us here this week. Catherine Susan Genovese, or Kitty Genovese, was born on July 7, 1935 in Brooklyn, New York, and she was the oldest of five children. Her parents were Rachel and Vincent Genovese. Kitty was raised in a Catholic home, and she attended Prospects Heights High School, which was an all-female prep school in New York. Kitty was remembered by her classmates as the class clown, having been voted as the class cut-up in her senior year, and teachers remembered her as a very bright and good student. In 1953, Kitty's parents would move away from New York after Rachel witnessed a murder. They moved to Connecticut. However, Kitty stayed behind in New York because she loved the city and the state very much. Kitty was one of those free spirits that we've talked about before on the podcast. She perhaps wasn't quite sure what she wanted to do with her time or her life, so she bounced around a bit from job to job looking for her calling in life. She held jobs as a secretary, a waitress, a hostess, and a barmaid. Her employers remember Kitty as reliable and a hard-working woman. This was certainly true as she was making a lot of money because she often worked double shifts and made about $750 a month. Taking inflation into account, she was making about $8,500 a month in today's dollars. That is an incredible amount of money for a young woman, and certainly shows how hard Kitty was working towards her future. Her long-term dream had been to open her own Italian restaurant in New York. She knew what her goals were, and she knew the life that she was building and working towards. In fact, when her father would bother her and tell her that she needed to find a man and settle down... She told him that no man could support her because she worked harder and made more money than a man did. Another one of the reasons that Kitty did stay behind in New York when her family left was because she was actually engaged to be married. In 1953, she did get married to a man, however, that and her life changed when she came out as a lesbian. The wedding was annulled based on her sexuality, and Kitty would continue on making money and working towards her goal of opening that Italian restaurant. On March 13, 1963, Kitty would meet a woman named Mary Ann Zilanko at Swing Rendezvous, which was an underground lesbian bar in Greenwich Village. For those that don't know the term, that means that it was not an entirely public place. Marianne and Kitty would quickly fall in love with one another, and they made the decision to move in together and to start their lives. The two would finally settle on an apartment that was located next to the Long Island Railroad Station in Kew Gardens, New York, which was a neighborhood in Queens. The neighborhood was considered to be one of the safer places to live in that area, and was on the second floor, one of 14 units in the building. It was one of those buildings where there were storefronts on the main floor and apartments up above. All things appeared to be on track for Kitty and Marianne and for their lives as they made the move and started to plan for their future together. However, as I'm sure you can guess, tragedy was going to strike. Kitty would leave work at 3 a.m. on March 13, 1964 which was the anniversary of the night that she met Marianne. Kitty was very excited to finally be off work and headed home to celebrate their first anniversary together. Kitty would park a car by the railroad station and then start her walk to her apartment, which was only about 30 meters from where she parked the car, so not a very long distance. She made her way into the alleyway that led to the door of her apartment, but before she could make it there, she found herself cornered by a man who was wielding a hunting knife. Kitty thought quickly and tried to make a run for the door of her apartment building, but the man ran after her and when he caught up to her, he would stab her twice in the back. At that point, Kitty screamed out for help, screaming, Oh my God, he stabbed me! Help me! Luckily for Kitty, some of her neighbors heard the scream although only a few recognized that it was a scream for help. One of the neighbors thought that uh, it was and actually yelled at the man, leave that girl alone, and the man actually fled the scene. Kitty managed to make her way towards the apartment building, obviously in an immense amount of pain, but still fighting. However, once she made it to the lobby of her building, she was out of the sight of any of the people who may have witnessed the initial attack. Witnesses would later report that they saw a man go to his car and drive away, only to again return about ten minutes later, and he was then hiding his face with a wide-brimmed hat. He could be seen searching the train station, and then the parking lot, and then the nearby apartment complexes, He was very clearly looking for Kitty. Unfortunately, the man did eventually find her. She was in a hallway at the rear of the building, and she was barely conscious, and she was on the floor. She was unable to get further into the building because the door was locked. The man would proceed to then stab Kitty many more times before he raped her and stole $49 U.S. from her before he fled the scene for now the second time. Both attacks took place within about thirty to forty minutes and there were knife wounds on Kitty's hands that told officers that she had tried in vain to fight back. One of Kitty's friends, Sophie Ferrar, heard the commotion in the entrance and came to check things out. She sat and consoled and tried to reassure Kitty that help was on the way, however, It would be a long wait for various reasons, and Kitty would eventually succumb to her injuries in the back of an ambulance en route to the Queen's General Hospital. There would be roughly a one-hour time span between the first attack on Kitty and the arrival of the ambulance, and to this day it is not entirely clear on what times actual calls came in to the police. This incident took place about four years before New York City implemented their 911 emergency call system. One witness would say that his father called the police after the first attack and said that a woman got beat up but was staggering around. It's believed that that call was not given a high priority as the details did not explain what had actually happened, a stabbing. A few minutes after the second attack, another witness named Carl Ross would call friends for advice based on what he had seen and heard, and would then call police, who quickly dispatched an officer and an ambulance. However, that ambulance would arrive only at 4.15 a.m. The police seemed to focus in on Marianne Zalanco as their suspect. At 7 a.m. on the morning that the murder took place, she was questioned by an officer and then she would later be interrogated for six hours by two homicide detectives who wanted to know all about the two women and their relationship. It was even said that when police spoke with witnesses and neighbors, they focused in on the couple as well, asking about arguments, fights, strange circumstances, and everything in between. The police seemed to have been centered on her because she was Kitty's spouse, but also because the two were lesbians. The coroner's report would indicate that Kitty had 13 stab wounds and numerous additional defensive wounds as well. The coroner stated that Kitty had fought her attacker very hard and that she quite possibly would have lived if emergency services had arrived before the second attack. Six days after the murder, a man would be arrested for suspected robbery in Ozone Park. While arresting the man, one of the detectives saw his vehicle and remembered that there was a white car, very similar to this man's car, that was spotted on the night that Kitty was killed. While the man was being questioned, he would admit that he had murdered three women, Annie Mae Johnson, Barbara Krelik, and Kitty Genovese. He also confessed to numerous other burglaries and sexual assaults. Annie Mae Johnson had been shot and burned to death in her apartment a few weeks before Kitty's murder, and Barbara had been killed in her parents' home the July before Kitty's murder. The man was Winston Mosley. At the time that he murdered Kitty, he was 29 years old and married with three children. He did not have a previous criminal record at all. He told police that his motive for killing Kitty was simply because he wanted to kill a woman. He said that he killed women because they were easier to kill and because they didn't fight back as much. He would tell police that he woke up between 1 and 2 a.m. while his wife was at work and drove through Queens trying to find a victim. He said that he was very close to giving up when he saw Kitty stopped at a red light and he followed her home in his car. He had fled the scene after being yelled at by the witness, but then returned to finish Kitty off when he realized that police and emergency services were not on their way to the scene. Mosley would be charged with the murder of Kitty only. One of the problems that prevented the police from prosecuting him for the other two murders was that another man had already confessed to the murder of Barbara Kralik. Mosley's trial began on June 8th of 1964 and he initially pled not guilty. However, his attorney would later change the plea to guilty by reason of insanity. After a very short trial that included Mosley describing the murder in great detail, on July 11th the jury found him guilty of Kitty's murder. The jury would further go on to sentence Mosley to death. He sat in court as the jury foreman read their sentence, and Winston didn't show any emotion. Later, in 1967, the New York City Court of Appeals found that Mosley should have been able to argue that he was indeed insane at the in hearing, and he had his sentence reduced from a death sentence to life imprisonment. There is a lot more to Mosley's story including an escape from custody and other crimes, but I did not feel it pertinent to share more of his story, so I'll leave him with this. In 2015, he was denied parole for the 18th time, and he later died in prison on March 28th of 2016 at the age of 81. He had served 52 years in prison for the murder of Kitty, which made him one of the longest-serving inmates in the prison system of new york state so now i will touch on the bystander effect kitty's rape and murder did not receive a lot of attention initially and it's believed that the police in fact wanted word to get out to the public more about her death so that they could use it to touch on a harrowing fact that fact was that oftentimes people do not react when the witness they witness a crime because they either feel like someone else will, or they feel like they don't want to get involved. The headline that made it to the newspapers was that 38 witnesses saw this murder and did not call the police. The story focused in on the fact that people, especially in big cities, live with a combination of apathy and fear, and do not feel the need to step in in times of trouble to stand up for or to help fellow human beings. This was a story for sure of people who heard and saw the initial struggle, if not the second struggle, and at least one person yelled out, but police were not called. The story grew over the years based on those reports, but over time it has been proven that this is more of a parable and an example of a bigger problem but that the story that grew, that 38 people watched Kitty get murdered, was ultimately not correct. The reality here is twofold. One, if you're like me and you learned about this story while taking a psychology class before it was further examined and debunked to some extent, you learned that 38 people watched a woman get killed and did not intervene. The reality is that nobody witnessed both attacks, and likely nobody actually witnessed Kitty's murder because of the layout of the building and where the two acts took place. The true fact, though, is that regardless of how many people saw, some people did witness that first attack by Winston on Kitty. There was at least one witness that saw and yelled, and even in witness statements, police, uh, people, sorry... People stated that they did not know what to do in those circumstances. As I mentioned earlier, this was before the implementation of 911, and also we need to realize that this happened in 1964, so 59 years ago. There are still times where people do not react the way that they should, and when they witness a crime. And nowadays, I would venture to say that maybe we've taken things to a new level. Sometimes people are more likely to take their phone out and record something that's going on rather than make a call for emergency services. So, I'm going to make it plain and simple. If you witness a crime, if you think you're witnessing a crime for that matter, call 911 or call the police. They would rather be called for something that is nothing than be called out too late to save a life, like what happened here with Kitty. We've said it on this podcast before, but the reality is that we have to try to not live in fear, and we instead need to try and get back to being a society where we look out for one another. If I could sum it up for you simply, there are way more of us good guys out there, so to speak. In the world then there are bad guys and we need to keep it that way if you have the chance to potentially save someone's life do it wouldn't you hope and pray that someone would do the same for you i will talk more on my reaction video over on patreon about kitty and about how i feel about this so please do join me over there reach out let me know where you stand Would you make a call in a situation like this to get police? Or would you hope that someone else would? Why would you react that way? I appreciate each and every one of you taking the time out of your week to spend it with me here on GBNF. I hope you come back next week and join me again. Thank you for listening, and don't forget to be better.